Well, for the past few weeks, uh, interspersed with some special things like baptisms and those types of things, we have been looking at um, what makes Redemption Hill Church Redemption Hill Church. Okay, so what is our DNA? If our organization could bleed and you could look under a microscope at our genetic makeup, what would you see? What would be there? Um, Two things we've mentioned so far and more to come. Uh, One would be a culture of persistent spirit-led prayer. Spirit-led prayer. And two, a community that gladly sacrifices for each other because of Jesus. Those would be two things you'd see, Lord willing, under that microscope as to what makes our church our church. And a third strand of DNA that should show up under that, mic- under that microscope might be a little bit different and a, and a little less obvious. Those first two are things that would be uh, true of, um, hopefully, of any church. Uh, but this distinctive we're going to look at this morning might have been the most noticeable change uh, for you and for our church back in August when we merged together, uh, two separate churches. And that's the distinctive of a shepherd team leadership model. A shepherd team leadership model. What do I mean by this? Well, I want to read our distinctive for us so that we know specifically what is being said. I'm not sure if we have it up or not, but listen carefully to what uh, this distinctive says. We are led by a team of biblically qualified male elders who serve as shepherds under Christ. Each elder acts with equal authority, yet differs in their responsibilities. Elders work in mutual regard, collaboration, and unity with one another. They make decisions on behalf of the church with both prayerful conviction and pastoral sensitivity. That's our distinctive. Now, we're going through these distinctives for very uh, practical reasons, obviously, so that we understand them in more in-depth, and that's a unifying thing. But there's also a pastoral reason that we're doing this as well. It's even though the, uh, the former churches that merged together had a desire for a shepherd team leadership, it wasn't as visible as it is now due to our individual circumstances, Right? So, there's a bit of a learning curve that we're all experiencing together as to how this works and what this should be like. Some of you might be a bit lost as to why we would do something so odd as this. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, you might still be wondering, well, who's the senior pastor here? And you're looking at the bulletin and you're trying to figure that out and you might be a little bit confused. Um, So, what I want to do this morning is look at where do elders or pastors get their job descriptions? Where does that come from? And why would we go through the hassle of taking two former churches who were glad for the leadership that they had and add more people into the mix and make it confusing? Why would we do that? Why would we create this ambiguity of who's doing what and all the difficulty and the slowness of leading as a group as opposed to one person? Why are we doing this to ourselves? (laughs) That's my question, okay? And that's a fair question. The short answer is this, we believe that Jesus Christ has designed the church to be led by a team of shepherds. We believe that scripture teaches that, and so submitting to that pattern will yield blessing and the wisdom of God. 
Christ knows best what our church needs most. That's why we're, that's why we're doing this. We believe that Christ knows best what our church needs most. I don't know about you, but I am more fully convinced by the truth of something, by seeing how it works and by kind of using my rational mind, but also by seeing it, its beauty in it and how it works out in practice. And so what I'd like to do this morning is look at a text of Scripture to get a biblical understanding of this. We'll pull from other parts because there's a pattern in the New Testament. But then I'd like to spend some time talking about the beauty of it and how it actually works in practice. So, you can see in your outline there, we're going to follow uh, leadership, and then shepherd, and team, and look at some implications. But why don't you stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there's some in the back. Feel free to grab one. If you don't have a Bible, keep it. Take it home. Read it all. Uh, here's what uh, God's Word says to us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's God's word to us. You can have a seat. So let's start with this word, leadership. Leadership. Christ intended for his church to be led by spiritually mature uh, men uh, in the church who would lead with his authority. With his authority. Now, we're going to need, we would need a lot of sermons to cover that whole distinctive that I read to you. So let me just say some brief things about what we mean when we say biblically qualified male elders. Give us a little background on this term and kind of what's going on in the New Testament. Okay, the, the concept of elders is actually older than just the New Testament. Um, it's, it's not a new idea. God's people have been led by uh, groups uh, in the Old Testament as well. If you think of the Old Testament, you a lot of times think of Abraham and Moses and these individuals. But you oftentimes find the delegation of authority to wiser and typically older men going on uh, as well in the Old Testament. We could look at that more in depth another time, but even during the time of Jesus, the Jewish authorities were, you often read, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the elders. Now, they obviously had a different idea of what that meant, but it's not new to to have the idea of, of a team leading versus just one individual. So Jesus describes this new type of leader as a shepherd. You remember when he exhorts Peter? Uh, and he, he tells him to, to love his sheep and feed his sheep and tend his sheep. He's giving that imagery to Peter who wrote the words that we just read in 1 Peter 5. And that image stuck with Peter and stuck with the apostles. These elders, these pastors, these shepherds are supposed to be imperfect versions of him. And we see them functioning that way in the, in the book of Acts. So there's elders at Antioch and Philippi and Ephesus and Jerusalem and the dispersed churches that James oversaw. Paul's pattern was to appoint elders in the churches that he raised up in Acts 14.23, we find. 
He tells Titus to do the same in Titus 1.5 when he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed to you. So leadership in the New Testament isn't this territorial, one-man show thing. It's not. It's, it's desiring to add more and more and more to the leadership group. There's not a sense of worry about someone coming and taking your job. The New Testament, I think, would delight in that happening. In adding more people to becoming leaders. Even as Paul and Titus and these different people were appointing elders, there was a sense in which God was raising up people and, and leading them to, to have certain leaders. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says to, these, uh, to the Ephesian elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So this isn't just, you know, Paul sitting down with a guy over a desk with a resume and checklist going, okay, you know, there's a sense in which God is at work in shaping these, these leadership teams for the New Testament. Now you think, well, how are these guys chosen? How did that work? Well, there's some qualifications you can find in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that were rigorously applied to the people who wanted to lead the church. What's wonderful about those lists is they're very generic things. Just simply mature categories for anyone following Christ. Okay? And it is assumed in these passages that elders would be men. Okay? And that, that that authority flowing from men to the church is a pattern we see in the New Testament. Okay? Again, we're going to have a whole sermon just on that and why that is. But notice in our 1 Peter chapter 5 passage that Peter's assuming that these elders are going to lead. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. And he, he gives a couple of qualifications to explain the angle that he's coming from. But then he later describes shepherding the flock of God as exercising oversight. There is leadership here that's expected of elders. Now, our culture has some concerns about authority. I don't know if you've picked up on that or not. Um, but our culture is not wildly excited about the idea of authority. And so maybe some may be concerned that um, this type of leadership would be turned into this heavy-handed, uh, chauvinistic, patriarchal kind of cult thing that happens in the church, right? When we come to the Scriptures, we, we bring with, with us our baggage and our views about certain things. And authority and how we view authority is one of those things. A lot of times people have problems with how churches are led, not because the leaders, but because of what they're assuming about authority. And so we need to get authority right. How, how, what is authority? Should we always question it like the good people of Sebastopol say, right, on their bumper stickers or whatever? Uh, anyone in Sonoma County, right? Just kind of this negative, skeptical, critical view of authority. Is that, should that be our view or should that not be? Well, biblical authority, uh, in its ideal terms, is a blessing. Authority is freeing. It's intended help. It's empowering and protective. It's life-giving. It's not oppressive. It's not stifling. It's something uh, to be enjoyed, not to be suspicious of. Authority is a part of God's grace to us. And this is why those who resist authority or just are suspicious, suspicious of all forms of it are actually harming themselves and they're damming up the waterways of God's grace. 
So for example, the governing authorities are described in Romans 13 as, quote, God's servant for your good. Ministers of God, it says, not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. A husband's authority in a marriage is to be used to, quote, give himself up for her. To love his wife as his own body so that she might be sanctified. Does that sound like the kind of authority that you would desire? Even Paul, when he's describing his own authority in the church in 2 Corinthians 10 and 13, listen to how he describes it. He says, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Chapter 13, verse 10. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in the use of my authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So do you see what the authority in the church is for? People are given authority in the church to serve and to be useful to God. And this is why we insist on having leadership at Redemption Hill. And it's not just a... uh, purely democratic kind of organization or institution. Because we believe this is for our good. So we don't apologize for for leadership. Because it's not a power grab. It's an opportunity to serve is what it is. That's what authority in the Bible is for. And so, obviously, it's more complicated than that, right? Because people get corrupted by authority. And that's why you have all the struggles you do with governing authorities and marital things and church drama because that gets corrupted. But the Bible speaks so highly of the potential of authority that we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. We cannot just disregard authority altogether. We need it. It's a blessing to us. So that's the first word, is just leadership. I want to be clear on that. There's a second word, the whole point of what Peter is saying comes to us in the the first word of verse 2, which is shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God. That's what he's urging them to do. That's what, if, if they leave with that idea, his point would have been made. In our statement, we say that elders are those who serve as shepherds under Christ. That they're to make decisions on behalf of the church with both prayerful conviction and pastoral sensitivity. What we mean by that is we need shepherd. That's what the primary image is as we think about elders. We should shepherd. So everything before shepherd that Peter's been describing is to build up to that word. And everything after he says shepherd the flock of God is describing how someone is supposed to do that. It's all about shepherding this flock. Now, we view shepherds in a very glamorous way when we look back in the Bible times, right? We picture them in these like perfectly clean like Clorox bleached outfits. They're out there, you know, in these mowed fields and um, this kind of view of a shepherd. And it was not that way. Okay, this was not a glamorous job. People's reactions might have been like, really? The church leaders are that, in that low of a position? They're shepherds? But the reason they chose that description is because it perfectly described what the role of a pastor or a shepherd or an elder is. They care for the sheep. They correct the sheep. They nourish the sheep. They tend to them. They protect them. It's a perfect analogy for what elders are supposed to be. And that's why the word pastor is actually the same word as it's the noun form of this verb to shepherd in the New Testament. They're the same. So what are these, how are these men supposed to shepherd? 
What should they be like? Well, we first see that the shepherds are supposed to follow and model their chief shepherd. Follow and model their chief shepherd. We notice there's a lot of things that, that they shouldn't be in verses 2 and 3, right? Not under this, not like this, not like that. But there is one overriding thing that they are supposed to be in verse 3, being examples to the flock. The reason they can be good examples to the flock is because they're following too. They have a chief shepherd, right? Just like all of us do. So the congregation is following followers. The congregation is being shepherded by men who are being shepherded. Elders really ought to be more like mirrors than they are individual saviors, right? That's not really, we're supposed to reflect Christ, to be an image of him. And so this helps us in a lot of really practical ways. Like it answers the question, well, who's the senior pastor of Redemption Hill Church? I authorize all of you to answer that question by saying, Jesus Christ himself. That's our answer. And it's not just like a really catchy little phrase to be different than all other, you know. That's not it. That's actually who's leading our church. And needs to be at the forefront of what we're doing. He is our chief shepherd. That's, you could say, senior pastor. Out of this text. He is our chief shepherd. So, we are following a shepherd. He is the ruling head. We are only as effective as leaders as we are following him. So Kelly, Tim, myself, we have to remember that. That our modeling is our primary influence. It's not how good at talking we are. It's not how good at organizing things we are. It's how like the shepherd we are. That is compelling. That's what is worth following. Because he is the worth, one worth following, right? The three of us are not probably in every way, right? My goodness. But he is. So this is why Paul also says things like in 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16, to this young pastor Timothy. These words have been so helpful to me. He said, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's saying, he's saying to Timothy not to arrogantly defend his ministry as a young man by insisting on people respecting him, but by having an irrefutable life. It doesn't matter uh, his, his age, if his testimony, and if his life is driving at this example. That is what's going to influence his following our chief shepherd. Look at what it says uh, in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Isn't that an interesting contrast? Like, why are those things different? Why is he contrasting those things? Those who might domineer or abuse or be harsh with or be manipulative of versus being an example to the flock. How are those related? I think it's because examples have the most powerful influence, right? If you think of the things you really know in life or you're really good at, you've probably seen those things modeled. You've probably walked with a person for a while or learned those things or picked those up from another person. 
You didn't just read a manual on, on how to you know, turn wood and you figured it out, right? You probably watched someone and they showed you how to do it and they modeled that. See, people domineer when their example isn't potent enough. That's why people domineer. Because their example is weak. And so in order to get submission, you have to be bossy and loud and make up stuff when it comes to the scriptures. Because your example isn't strong enough to follow. Domineering is compensation. It's a fleshly way to get submission without being an example. You notice that there's a positive spin in verse 4 about these elders, assuming they're doing faithfully, that there will be this unfading crown of glory. Which just speaks to the fact that elders and pastors and leaders are going to be judged. They're going to have to give an account for the souls that they're watching over. Is what Hebrews says. Now that verse can bring all kinds of comfort. And yet it can also be very sobering sense of responsibility. So, as leaders, we keep an eye on the flock, yes, but we're always keeping an eye on Jesus. We're always taking our cue from Him. We're following Him. And to the degree that we're following Him, others can follow our example. That's what it means to shepherd the flock of God. You know, elders are sheep too. And so as we experience the need for His rod and for His staff and for His correction, that tempers the way in which we use those things in the flock. And as we humble ourselves before Christ, and as we are mindful of our sin, and we need His grace, that informs how we interact with the body of Christ and developing hearts of shepherds that are somewhat like Jesus. When we're helping lead people to the green pastures and waters of God's Word, it's because God has led us there already. And he's teaching us and showing us. And so then we in turn can show others. I hope that that image makes more and more sense the longer time you spend here. Shepherds are also motivated by the right things, it says. That they should serve not under compulsion, it says, in halfway through verse 2, but willingly as God would have them. This is, really gets at motive. Okay? So if you've got to whip an elder into place all the time, something is wrong. Something's off. Okay? If he's there because other people want him to be, or he needs a paycheck, or he's the oldest guy in the room, those are problematic. And those are going to reveal themselves in time. He needs to be serving with passion and energy given by God. Why? Because there are really hard days at eldering. And if you're there to, to get approval or a paycheck or other things, that will be exposed and you'll treat the people more like a hireling than you will a shepherd. You just won't last if you're there to make a buck, right? It's not a great place to try to make a buck, but if you're there for that reason, it'll be quickly exposed, right? So our leadership needs to be worthy of that kind of respect, we're here willingly. We desire to do this. We're eager to do this. We say in this distinctive, elders make decisions on behalf of the church with both prayerful conviction and pastoral sensitivity. So we, at the same time, must be saying things like Paul does in Galatians 1. 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We have to have the spiritual ability to tune out the voice of others at times. While at the same time, being able to say, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation that's in Christ Jesus. So being, being mindful of what the body needs and what they're saying and what their desires are, and at the same time, letting God's voice trump all the time. Being attentive to both of those things. An elder needs to hear God's voice first, serve the body's needs second, and consider themselves last. That's what an elder is to be. Because we're not leading in a vacuum. It's not just, you know, leading a class and whoever shows up, shows up. We're leading a group of people with certain sensitivities and certain sins and certain gifts and skills. And you've got to be able to lead and shepherd people. It'd be disastrous to get to those green, that green grass and those meadows and all that water and then look around and there's no sheep, <laughs> right? You're leading people. You're shepherding people. It's not an idea. You've got images and souls on board here. And after you do it a little while, you're kind of aware of how God is able to shepherd people who he knows their sin really well. And yet he is audaciously committed to them. It's a strange thing that happens, that, that there's a lot of heartache and disappointment and discouragement. And yet there's just this tenacious sense that these are my people. And I'm with them and I'm for them and I'll protect them and I'll defend them and I'll stay up at night thinking about them and I'll wake up in the morning thinking about them. That's going to be happening in an elder's life. Because that reflects what God is like as our shepherd. I need to keep moving. Last word is team. Team. You say, each elder acts with equal authority, yet differs in their responsibilities. Elders work in mutual regard, collaboration, and unity with one another. The words elder and shepherd and overseer and pastor are all used interchangeably in the New Testament. You may know that already. But the, the reason there's different words is because there's, there's different emphases for what type of things pastors and elders do. They care and they protect and they fight off wolves and they feed and they walk with the weak and they do all those things. And so there's multiple words to describe what they do. You won't find the idea, I believe, of a senior pastor in terms of a pattern as a model of leadership. This doesn't mean that if churches have senior pastors that they're being unbiblical and they're way off. And That's not what we're saying. Okay, There are situations where uh, one person is the only one who's qualified to do that, or there's seasons in churches where that's really only the, the only possibility at the time. The point is not necessarily what, what the existing church looks like, it's what's the desire, what's the goal for what the leadership should be in the future. And that's where we believe Scripture does inform us. There is a slight distinction made between elders in 1 Timothy 5, between those who are gifted specifically to preach and teach and to potentially be compensated for that, if the body's able to do that, and those who are shepherding in a, in a lay sense or in a remaining faithful shepherds in their primary tasks. So you see Peter and James and these others are assuming responsibility and oftentimes being the one speaking or, or kind of representing the group. But you'll also find that those men need rebuke at times too. And so it's important that there's an equal authority going on in the New, in the New Testament. 
So in 1 Peter 5, 1, did you notice that he calls himself a fellow elder? And you kind of see this transition happening from these apostles to now this eldering task that he, um, he is also doing. He is a witness to the resurrection, which is what uniquely apostles were marked by, or witnesses to Jesus. But he's also doing the work of shepherding. He's also a shepherd. He knows what these guys are going through and what, what they're banking on with this coming glory and what suffering is like and all those things too. Do you notice in 1 Peter 5, in these, this description of what shepherding is not supposed to be, how much better those things are if you're working in a team? Like, for example, if a guy is serving under compulsion, it's like, well, there's nobody else. I'm the only guy here, you know, kind of thing. Obviously, that's helped by having groups or having people around him. A type of attitude would prevent burnout and help uh, there to be some health there and not certain, being able to serve eagerly and not just under compulsion. Or how about a church who has an elder who wants to line his pockets? It'd be really helpful for that guy to be in accountable relationships with other people on a team where they're all on equal footing, wouldn't it? How about those who'd want to domineer? People who tend to domineer aren't willing to work in teams, right? And share authority and do those kinds of things. There's a lot of modern examples of this going wrong. But they have a low view of the Holy Spirit. But on a team, it's different because you can speak into that. You can see that coming. You can hear that tone of voice and say, you know what? I need to stop you there. We need to talk through that. We need to be mindful. Don't take the rod out with the sheep that's limping along. Pick them up. But that works better on a team. Now, There's a downside of working on a team, and that means deliberation and making decisions and all these kind of things drags out a little bit. Some of you might have been experiencing that a little bit. Man, these guys are taking a while to get back to us. What's this all about? And so it's a slower process, but we do believe that the end result is far better than just one person having an opinion about something. I remember going through a process with Kelly when he was becoming an elder at the former Calvary church that I had served at. And I remember sitting at lunch with Kelly, and Kelly was insistent, and he just looked at me and said, I want you to know up front that I am not going to be a yes man. And I said, this is the kind of guy I want around, right? This is the guy we need, I need around me. We, we need to have voices into each other's life. We need to be able to disagree and to say, no, 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 back up the truck, wait a minute. Because we need to be operating by conviction, right? In what we're doing. So it's tricky. You're trying to be an elder meeting, humble and willing to listen, but also not to just uh, defer always, but to have backbone and to have enough guts to stand up and operate by your convictions. You know, as people heard about our desire and plan to merge, even, even after we had merged this past August, I heard two common questions. That is, who's going to be the lead pastor and who's going to be doing the preaching? And those are probably questions you might have asked or might have thought. Now, um, now my answer would, would be some kind of reworded version of this distinctive that we just talked about and explain. We don't have a lead elder or a senior pastor, uh, but we're doing uh, what we believe to be faithful to the pattern in the New Testament and having an equal, yada, yada, yada. And uh, sometimes I'd throw in that we actually want other people to preach too, and that would just to kind of throw a little curveball in there, but um, that's okay. Um, I, and the, some of the reason I bring that up is because it's, it's curious to me why those things came up first. 
I, I think some of the concern that, that I have, that we have as a leadership team, is that the church has swallowed the culture's obsession with celebrity and personality. That's so concerning to us. And the church can slip easily into the Corinthian problem of I follow Francis Chan, or I follow John Piper, or I follow Charles Stanley, or I follow the preferred pastor of my choosing. And the church should have one brand name. Jesus, right? Amen. That's our brand. That's who, that's who we're here for. That's why, why we're serving. We're unworthy servants. But the problem with the pastor preference in Corinthians of I follow Paul or I follow Apollos is it's actually cutting yourself off from half the benefit. Because Paul goes on and says in chapter 4, verse 21 to 23, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. He's saying by playing favorites, you're actually picking and choosing when you can have them all. It'd be like saying, you know, I'm going to commit myself to the fork. The fork, it, it can poke things. It can cut things. It's a far more useful instrument, right? And so I'm just, I'm going to be a fork guy. So on the night when I'm having soup, right, and I've got my fork out, and I'm lapping a thousand times, getting about a half an ounce each time, because I'm committed to the fork when I've got all of them in the drawer. And there's a reason why they're different, and they're useful for different reasons. It's a bit like that when we commit ourselves to a personality. Paul is saying, they're all yours in Christ's bestowment of his gifts. They're all for your benefit. At Christmas, you don't like pick and choose the presents that are named, have your name on them, right? They're all for your benefit. I remember a wise pastor of an adult-led church that I was at was approached by a person who was trying to be complimentary and said, you know, today's sermon was great, but I just really love your preaching, you know, which is kind of a subtle way of saying, I didn't really like the sermon this morning, and I'd much rather have you up there than him. But it was kind of this nice, like, Christian way of saying that, right? And so he proceeded to explain all the reasons why he preferred this man's preaching. And this elder man uh, said to him, all I know is that a great meal was served today, and you didn't eat. And that was it. And he just left it. I hope and pray. And we're already hearing things from the body like, you know, I don't remember who it was exactly who was preaching, but, and that's, that's stuff we love. You know why? Because you're coming for this. And you're coming for him. That's what that means. That's what that translates into in our minds. And we're thrilled about that. And we love to see that. We're okay with being forgotten. That's good. That's a good thing in the end. Because his word and Christ himself will be the thing that this church is about. When we're dead, right? Or if the bread truck comes, or example, or whatever. And we're no longer here. We won't be a fork-only kind of body. A man named Gerard says, The church is to be the expression of the personality of Jesus Christ, not the expression or the personality of any man. No single member of the body is to be allowed to leave his personal imprint on all the church's life and work. 
The church is to be dominated by the Spirit of Christ flowing through many lives, that its unity of the church can be traced in part to the practice of elevating strong men, their dynamic personal ministries, or their special interpretation of the gospel to a place in the church above the gospel itself. So when I heard those questions and those things immediately, I know that many were well-meaning, but I think we have this celebrity thing backwards. The second concern is what it assumed about what an elder or pastor is. There seems to be this idea that if you share leadership, you're forfeiting it. If you can't be the guy with the ace of the spades who can say, my will be done in the meeting, then there's just going to be chaos and it's going to be out of control and no one's going to know. And it's just not that way. Or if you're not going to be able to preach most weeks and there's going to be this mounting frustration, right? An elder or a pastor doesn't own a congregation. They're not his in an ultimate sense. They're stewards. They've been entrusted for a time. They'll give account. But if a pastor has a hard time sharing authority with other qualified people, could that be indicative that he's forgotten he's a steward and not an owner? One person shouldn't have the final authority because he's not the final authority. (laughs) And so I think it's reflective of what Things should actually be. And shouldn't a pastor be able, not just able, but desire to sit, to listen, and to benefit from hearing a sermon? Why would that be different for a pastor than for anyone else? Again, just needling questions that we're trying to poke at here at Redemption. You know, this past Thursday, I think, was a perfect example of why, of how this team works in practice. And let me just share just an example, Okay. We get together, we're, trying, we're watching a, a sermon that Tim and I got to see at a conference in Minnesota about what does it mean to quench the Spirit. And it was really thought-provoking. So Kelly watched it, we watched it again, and we get together. Okay, what does 1 Thessalonians 5.19 mean? What, how does it apply to our corporate gatherings? And, and as we talked and, and batted things around, all kinds of questions came up that I never would have thought of or never would have, would have considered from that angle. And we're talking about how we could more, be more free in allowing the Spirit to move amongst our, our bodies so that we're not quenching Him. And that conversation was just life-giving. It just it left us with this idea, this hunger for doing the things that we had talked about. The very next day in my time with God in 1 Corinthians 14, I read this verse, which really, I think the Lord just provided for encouragement. He says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. The day after, I thought, that's the kind of stuff we're trying to do. Teams lead better. More men watching on the wall means more security. More men thinking and praying and studying Scripture means more well-rounded decisions and leadership. So that's why God designed this to work as a team. I need to get practical because we need to be done soon. Okay, So let's think about some implications for this for us as a, as a church family. First, be encouraged and excel still more. Brothers and sisters, you've done really well with this. And I just want to commend you for that. Okay, better than I think I expected, where you're seeing the blessing, you're seeing the benefit of having a multitude of people serving in this way. No one ran from the building screaming, right? Petty preferences aren't like the constant topic of conversation around here. They're not. It's wonderful. We know for certain that it's not because we've done everything right. I guarantee that has not been the case. 
You've been gracious, you've been attentive, you've been flexible, and we're thankful for that. So good job. Be encouraged in that. We've been at this for nine months now. We talked about 12 to 18 months as kind of this awkward phase of merging and all this stuff, and that means we're maybe more than halfway there, right, of some of the awkwardness, which is great. It's hard to believe it's been that long even when you think about it. So we'll continue to see his wisdom in this, but excel still more. Keep going. Okay, get, in, get to know all of the elders. If there's a way that you're kind of typically reliant on one, work at the other two for now. Pray that we'll add more. Okay? We know this is the kind of thing that's going to take time, but keep going. You're doing well. Second, catch the vision. Catch the vision. What makes a, a team of elders work well is what makes ministry teams work well. Right? Humility, willingness, careful listening, Courage, a spirit of deference, knowing your Bibles, feeling like other people aren't a threat, they're a help. If you can work yourself out of a ministry job by training up someone else to do it so you can do something else, that's great. That's not a threat to us. So take the responsibility to be thoughtful about the spiritual care of others. Man, I hope that you're desiring earnestly to be leaders in churches someday. You don't have to be perfect to be an example, right? So if you're single, shepherd your friendships towards Christ. If you're married, shepherd your wife skillfully. If you're a father, learn how to invest spiritual life into your home. That is pastoring. All those things are pastoring. And so becoming an elder just widens that circle of what you've already practiced at doing. An elder's training ground is normal life. So continue in that. Third, pray for us and our families. We need prayer. Prayer for strength and endurance. Our, our families have undergone a lot this past year and a half. Pray for integrity in our homes. Pray for some possible respite coming to us this summer we've been talking about. We all kind of envisioned a slower pace, right? <laughs> we're going to all get together and be able to feel like this is more manageable and then a fire breaks out. Now we're helping 19 pastors get their feet under them who lost their homes. And by God's grace, we can do that because we're working as a team. But it's also, it's, it's pretty taxing stuff. So pray for us. Pray for our spouses and for our kids and for the, the wisdom to know and to pull back and to invest in our homes. Pray that God would raise up other leaders. Pray that the enemy's desire to harm us and the unity of our church would be frustrated. Pray that God would help us to delegate now that we've kind of got our minds around this thing uh, to include others. So pray for us and for our families. In closing, um, I want to address something that has come up and that's been a couple other guys or pastors have talked to us about how unique it is as it's happening because of the friendship that Tim and Kelly and I share. But I, I want to push against that idea a little bit and say this, this model, this idea of a shepherd team is something that we want to last at redemption. When we're gone, it's our prayer that this body would be hungry for, for the New Testament's pattern of leadership. See, it's not just about relationships. It's about the people of God being cared for. It's about elders being able to endure in ministry together effectively. It's about the church looking different than the way that 
that organizations are led in the world. All those things are why we want this model to last. But most of all, we want the leadership of our chief shepherd the most. It's about Christ and it's about his purposes. And so we want to see him more clearly. And so would you pray that God would sustain this model here at Redemption until he comes? Would you take some practical steps this morning to pray, support, and contribute to the leadership culture here? Christ knows best what our church needs most, and that's him and his gospel. Let's pray for that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your wisdom. Uh, We thank you for uh, your grace, Lord, and for your willingness to, uh, to be our good shepherd. God, that you are with us always to the end of the age. And you have designed for your church to be led in a certain way. And God, every model of that is imperfect. There are are things about applying these things that are hard and that that make life challenging uh, as a ministry. But we pray, God, that you you would give us a spirit of humility, a desire for your word, for clear communication, for... Um, uh, a body that sees the benefit, a body that feels heard by their elders. Give us attentive ears, God, as elders, to the needs of this church family and to your voice. God, we want this to last, not just because, well, this is a unique thing, but we want this to last because you're going to be glorified more and your body's going to be helped more and the kingdom is going to advance further because of this. Help us to know our individual way that we are to contribute to this culture, to delight in the the multiplicity, to delight in the diversity of gifts, to be receptive uh, to the different ways that that manifests itself here. May that willingness to receive from each elder be multiplied to receiving the gifts of the entire body. God, you form this thing, you're leading this thing, help us to hear your voice and to be attentive to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.